Welcome back to Streamageddon, uh, the TV and streaming podcast where hot streaming strike summer is over and sweaty streaming strike fall is here. I'm your host, Chris Barlow. Uh, you know, not, not sweaty yet, but as is often the case, the hot weather will linger just like the strikes in Hollywood. I'm joined, of course, by Diane Nora, uh, our roving reporter, joining me from far across the country. How are things out there, Diane? Still sweaty. Uh, also, also a little too hot and uh, not really showing signs of improvement. Wow. Not really showing signs of improvement could be the tagline for the entire episode. Uh, we took three weeks off for the end of summer and a lot of news occurred during that time, but none of it changed anything. And that is your summary of the strike news we missed uh, during our hiatus. How does that sound, Diane? Did I miss anything? It's starting to feel a bit discouraging. That's the part I miss, the discouragement, yes. Mm -hmm. I'm smiling, but only on the outside. So I would say that that tentative title, Not Really Much Improving, does not apply to the show we'll be reviewing. Ooh, that is a pivot, and I love a good pivot, Diane, because this week happens to be the season finale of season five of What We Do in the Shadows, uh, perhaps the most storied sitcom on FX since... Always Sunny in Philadelphia, now, of course, the anchor of FXX. Keep your FXs straight, people. Uh, what we do in the shadows, I love the show. Diane loves the show. We've never talked about the show. And this is the perfect week to tell you why you should still be watching What We Do in the Shadows. You're in for a treat. Oh, and speaking of treats, Diane, once again, a perfect segue. Because you, Diane, are in for a treat. There's been some late summer news, and we have only one way to tackle it here on Streamageddon. It's America's favorite game show, renewed or canceled. Okay, Diane, I have just a few shows I want to run you through, and, and I want you to remember the tagline of this uh, episode. The theme is discouragement. So we will begin on HBO, The Idol, renewed or canceled? The Idol has been canceled after one season on HBO. I, I prefer to say The Idol has been canceled after five episodes on HBO. Mm. You know, I, I like The weekend as an artist, so I was bummed when I was hearing early reviews of this show, and I feel that my choice to stay away continues to be validated. Same, same. And I am ready to move right on from that uh, on streaming. A League of Their Own, season two, renewed or canceled? Bummer. This, this is a real bummer. It was canceled after being renewed. After being sort of canceled, then renewed to a four-episode mini-season, now Amazon's like, never mind. And they're blaming the strike. Uh, poor form, Jeff. Poor form. Poor form. Speaking of, The Peripheral also airs oh, on Amazon, renewed or canceled. That, <laughs> they, they did the same thing to The Peripheral, it's been canceled. Yes, yes. And, and what I would uh, say about this, it's bad news uh, in general, of course. If you have to wonder why, and why would they kind of uh, allude to the strike as the reason for the cancellation? What I would assume is the answer is that uh, these are shows. They're not big hits, either of them. A League of Their Own was going to end with season two anyway. Uh, and the reason to bring them back is to promote them. 
because promoting them promotes Amazon Prime Video. And even if A League of Their Own is ending, you might get some new viewers to check it out, and they might be new to Amazon Prime Video, period. And that is a net gain for Amazon Prime Video, worth the investment in a show they've already decided to part ways with. Uh, now, you cannot promote those shows because of the SAG-AFTRA strike in particular, and so they don't see any return on their investment, which in, in cold, you know, business numbers results in this kind of decision-making, I think. That's a great point. One thing that these cancellations brought up for me was some of the ethics in the way that shows are canceled. Obviously, shows have been being canceled before they premiered since TV started, but uh Creators of shows and people who work on those shows should not find out this news in the trades. Yeah, that is a that hard That seems part. like a, a pretty ethical, cl clear point to me. You know, just don't, just tell them. And then you can put make it public. But this is how we found out and how many of those creators found out as well. And, and uh, as we've seen in the past uh, with shows that have been removed from the services suddenly, many of those creators found out when their show disappeared. Uh, this is uh, one of the, you know, one of not the uh, explicit arguments in the, the strikes right now. It is one of the uh, vibes of the strike right now. This uh, mm -hmm. imbalance in maybe what you might say is respect of the artist. Ooh, agreed. And you might have some thoughts about these next two shows, which both happen to be from Disney Plus, a uh, service we're going to talk more about in just a moment. So I'm going to begin with one that technically, uh, you know, has not been made yet. Nautilus. Is it still being made or canceled? Nautilus has been canceled? Yes. Had you even heard of Nautilus, you never will now, but it is somehow far enough in development that uh, Disney can take a write down by canceling it. Oof. If you're curious, Nautilus was a live-action Captain Nemo series. There you go. Right, team? That could have been interesting. Could have, and we'll never know now. One more, in the same vein, The Spiderwick Chronicles on Disney Plus, renewed or canceled. So this has been uh, canceled before ever airing. That is correct. Once again, another write-down. Can't promote it. Don't want to bother with it. Poor kids. It's truly, truly. And that, ooh, it was a really upbeat edition of Renewed or Cancelled. <laughs> and of course, I have to pay my respects to Bob Barker. Rest in peace, King. Spay and neuter your pets. I spayed and neutered mine, and she's licking my legs right now. That's how she gets <laughs> off, and I hope it's how your dog gets off, too. Speaking of uh, getting off, let's get off that subject and on to what's been happening at a very, very large, very, very important company that you might know as Disney Plus. Yeah, so Disney is maybe uh, under a lot of pressure right now. We're going to talk about how the strike influences that and some updates on the fall TV lineup. So if you're curious about what the strike's going to do to fall TV, stay tuned. But first, let's talk about the biggest single streaming story that dropped during our, our little break. Disney Plus, the number one streamer that we told you to cancel in our last episode. If you remember, we told you it's time to cancel Disney Plus. They made it really easy to cancel because they raised their prices. 
Oof, they sure did. Unless you have the lowest tier, the Disney Plus with ads. That you, one's staying the same. You don't say. The one with ads is staying the same. And <laughs> what wouldn't you know it? They did the same thing to Hulu. It's more expensive unless you have the Hulu with ads, in which case you're actually going to get constant bombardments of emails from Hulu letting you know you can get a, a six-month special on Hulu with ads. They just really want you to watch some ads in between uh, Only Murders in the Buildings. I mean, I do it. It's not that disruptive. <laughs> Same. I have Hulu with ads. And right now, I, I wanted to bring back our, our kind of buying advice here. So the state of play right now is you can get Disney Plus with ads for $7.99 a month, same as before. You can get Hulu with ads, $7.99 a month, same as before. You cannot bundle those. So if you want both of them, it's simply $16 a month for both of them. And at that point you're really close to what they would prefer you do, which is bundle them ad-free for $20 a month. So let's talk about the ad-free options. You can bundle them for $20 a month. That's Netflix-level pricing, man, but okay, okay. Or you could separate them. Disney Plus ad-free, now $14 a month. That's up from $11 a month before. Hulu ad-free, now $18 a month, up from $15 a month before. You're, you're beginning to see how if you want either one of those ad-free, you might as well bundle them for $20 a month, especially if you have Hulu ad-free. If you have Hulu ad-free, they are basically just saying you must bundle if you want to continue with anything on Disney+, Plus because at that point it's only $2 more for Disney+. Plus. And if you are someone, you know, sensitive to ads and really doesn't want to see them, I mean, I would consider Hulu an essential streaming product. Yeah, yeah. And like, we said I, in our last episode, we're both very bullish on Hulu. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, But now, I don't know if I'm... Are you $18 bullish on Hulu? At that point, you're, you're looking at some at some tight cuts, I think. Yeah. I so I, I remain very bullish on Hulu with ads. I think $8 a month for the catalog you get and the relatively light ad load in my experience is a good deal. Eight bucks for Hulu with ads sounds great. I am still lost on what you're supposed to do with Disney Plus in this equation. I don't personally find enough content on Disney Plus to want to pay even $8 a month for it, let alone the feeling of being kind of ripped off if I'm paying $8 a month for Hulu and $8 a month for Disney Plus because I'm on the ad plans. I agree with that. I do. I think that uh, Disney Plus could improve with new shows coming, but I, I you know, have no... There's no consistent quality on Disney+. Plus. They have occasionally great things, whereas Hulu has consistently great stuff and next day stuff. That and a back catalog of consistently great stuff. Hulu's kind of a trifecta like that. You know, next day uh, ABC content is not a big factor in the middle of the strike. But in general, that combo of next day network, a next day cable, as we're going to talk about with what we do in the shadows, and then the streaming originals and the back catalog of, you know, shows like Futurama. That's, you know, uh, a new series, so to speak, on Hulu right now. But, but it really relies on the fact that they have uh, like 10 season back catalog. Yeah, no, I I guess I have to pay all this money and keep and keep Hulu. But though I think I think okay. I'll keep with my ad free. I want to I want to throw a bomb, a bombshell in this discussion because I have a real-time correction. 
You can bundle the ad plans. Twist. Oh, what's the ad plan bundle cost? What would you pay for an ad plan bundle of Disney Plus and Hulu? $14.99. Oh, wow. Then you're going to love that it's only $10.99. I'm sorry, $9.99. It's getting cheaper by the minute. That's pretty good. I mean, because if you're paying for them individually, that's like 16 bucks. So, you know, that's, that's a, a substantial. Yeah. Yeah. They call that duo basic duo basic. <laughs> you can get a trio basic. Trio basic is uh, ESPN plus as well. There is no content on ESPN plus that I want to watch, though. Is there any content on ESPN plus period? No one knows anymore, which is one of the things Disney is struggling with. What to do? with ESPN and ESPN Plus as part of that equation. If you're not uh, familiar with ESPN Plus, let's make one thing very clear. It is not ESPN. It is other stuff. If you recall CNN Plus, the brief flirtation we had with CNN Plus, it was similar. It was not CNN. It was other stuff related to CNN. Uh, and historically, the reason for this is that ESPN is the crown jewel of cable bundles, and they make a fortune off of the fees from the cable providers who have to have ESPN. It's the reason people buy cable. Uh, okay, that's been good for a long time for Disney. As many people have pointed out, that cash cow uh, helped them purchase Marvel, Lucasfilm. It's been good for Disney. But cable is shrinking faster than some people expected, sports rights are getting really expensive, and what everyone wants is to just buy an over-the-top streaming ESPN-style service. They just want to have ESPN, not Plus, just ESPN. And as we've talked about on our favorite segment, what's that, Bob? Uh, Bob Iger, current CEO and former CEO, all the CEO of Disney, has said they're looking for a strategic partner to help with ESPN, which sounds uh, to some people like saying we want an Amazon-style company to give us big streaming distribution. But to other people, it sounds like he's really saying, hey, NFL, NBA, sports leagues, your rights are really expensive. What if instead of us just giving you money for the rights and then making money on airing the games, what if we had a partnership where we both, all the parties involved, make money on airing the games? It is, you have, you know, to the leagues, what if you had some skin in the game? Uh, and it's not clear which or both of those things he's seeking out, but uh, all of them are intriguing in that they all kind of really disrupt the way we consume sports. And whether you care about sports or not, sports is sort of the bedrock of uh, television-style entertainment in America. Oh, yeah. And I think, you know, we've shown with the COVID disruptions in, in shows over the past few years that, like, sports remain consistent even when um, ESPN isn't necessarily, um, but, you know, people still want to watch sports. Another possibility is that something like sports betting could become involved, um, which in the past, Iger has said that he is resistant to, and that is not part of the Disney brand, but he seems to be... Um, uh, opening the possibility of caving on that point. So Yeah, ESPN has made a branding agreement with a, an existing online sports betting platform that will rebrand itself as the ESPN bet platform in states where that's legal. Uh, and that is a, a 180 from how Iger talked about it in the prior Iger tenure. So many things have clearly changed in his calculus. Uh, the other open question on, on the Lanier side is if 
Iger will really sell off any networks. He says he doesn't want to sell off ESPN. He says he wants to keep ESPN. But it is noteworthy that uh, one of his first hacks returning was a big reorg of the company that separated ESPN into its own division that could easily be sliced off without uh, another reorganization. Whereas uh, the networks, in particular ABC, but also FX, Freeform, are much more integrated in the Disney entertainment side of the business. I mean, one of them's called the Disney Channel. It would be hard to separate that completely from the Disney brand. Hard, but in this era, never say never. Especially never say never to Bob Iger, because he seems like he's capable of anything. The man, the man's on a mission, and I don't know what the mission is. We started this by saying he's under a lot of pressure, but it is helpful to rem remind ourselves that he <laughs> chose to come back. Yes, he chose the pressure. The man lives and thrives in pressure. Yes, he loves to make money. <laughs> and that too. And nothing says the pressure of how to make more money than the fall TV uh, schedule. That's a, that's a pivot there. Uh, the fall TV schedule is coming soon, and Disney is facing uh, a lot of headwinds there with the strike, as are some of the other networks. But I wanted to start with Disney in particular uh, because of one headline that caught my eye. The end of an era on ABC. The end of Shondaland Thursdays. For now. You know, until the strike's over, and then Shondaland Thursdays will be back. But currently, after a, a long reign of uh, Grey's Anatomy and its related shows, Shondaland has to take a break because they have nothing filmed, and they are filling the entire Thursday three-hour primetime lineup with Bachelor-adjacent programming, including, I am excited to say, The Golden Bachelor. That I am... Actually curious about The Golden Bachelor among all of the Bachelor properties. It seems like it has the potential to be heartwarming or at least novel in the sense that when people talk about the different series of uh, Bachelor in Paradise and Bachelorette and stuff, sometimes I uh, have trouble understanding the difference among them. Uh, this seems actually like a new concept. I, I agree, especially with the thought of I cannot tell the other bachelors and bachelorettes and in paradises apart from each other. They all just feel like a, a giant soup. Uh, this one, I'm like, it's it's the Golden Bachelor. You show me one of those cast members. I bet I can tell you it's the Golden Bachelor. Yeah. <laughs> strong, strong branding there. Well, that is coming to Thursdays this fall on ABC. But uh, not every network has had to jettison all uh, scripted programming. There are some scraps that a few networks were able to hold on to. Over on NBC, they managed to film some episodes of Quantum Leap and Magnum P.I., two just hits, just hit shows that everyone's talking about. Maybe this is their moment to shine. I think NBC is really hoping so. Uh, on CBS, though, things are cre uh, rather creative, I think. CBS, uh, you know, home to uh, many series that are in the procedural genre and they do not have new episodes of, but also CBS, a place that can reuse content from Paramount+. And so later in the fall 2023-2024 uh, season, we're going to see Star Trek Strange New Worlds uh, airing Sundays, I believe, on uh, CBS. That is, you know, uh, they're going to be reruns if you've seen them on Paramount+. Plus, but keep in mind, many people have not seen anything on Paramount+. Plus, and so it's new to you if you've only ever watched CBS. 
So I find that to be a smart move. I'm surprised NBC isn't doing more of that with Peacock content, but uh, NBC also has a hard time not canceling Peacock content, so maybe they just don't know what to do. The Poker Face would be a great play on NBC, and I think a good draw to get people to subscribe to Peacock before the second season. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I can't believe they're not doing that. Yet. Maybe they just, right. Maybe they just don't want to pay whatever it would cost them to get Ryan Johnson to okay it. I mean, yeah, I don't maybe know. there is a big, a big renegotiation there. That's true. That's true. Uh, but uh, more creativity at CBS that I deeply respect, uh, because one genre that's hit very hard by uh, both these strikes is sitcoms. You'll notice uh, ABC really does not have anything to fill its sitcom void right now, which hurts for them because Abbott Elementary has been such a rock for their sitcom lineup. Uh, CBS has a similar problem with Ghosts. Ghosts is a hit on CBS, and I think you, Diane, know how much I love Ghosts on CBS. I love those ghosts, too. I do. And I would be sad, except I have some good news, because in uh, lieu of ghosts returning this fall, you'll be able to watch Ghosts, the BBC version, airing on CBS this fall. Do you see a theme at CBS? They go, hey, what if we aired this old thing that you probably haven't seen because it aired somewhere else? Honestly, this is a great idea. I, I'm I, all for it. I think this is the smartest move of the major networks this fall. It is a lot of recycling, but it's smart recycling. And it is uh, recycling with some synergy, you know? And uh, the plot twists on a show like Ghosts are definitely entertaining. And they, they you know, uh, hold you and, and keep you coming from episode to episode. But you're really watching it for the charm. It's a show with a lot of rewatchability. So why not air two versions? They're both delightful. Agreed. Agreed. Uh, we've already mentioned how uh, the strike is affecting some of the streaming lineup this fall uh, on the Amazon side. I did want to touch on uh, HBO, Max. I'm sorry, Max. We just call it Max. I want to touch on... Wabro Disco. Uh, because Wabro Disco, Warner Brothers Discovery, I think is in a similar uh, position as Disney in a lot of ways, but with a couple of key differences. Uh, one of them is that, you know, Disney has the theme park business that is very robust and doing very, very well right now. And so while their entertainment side is in a precarious place with the strike and with the kind of crunch on streaming investment, they have a whole separate part of the company that is just a cash cow still. And uh, Warner Brothers Discovery does not really have that in their wheelhouse at all. But on the flip side, Warner Brothers Discovery has Discovery, which is an entire like genre of television unscathed by these strikes, and that can continue to produce a ton of new content uh, as things move forward. Uh, both of them, though have to struggle with the fact that they have movies that are also suffering from this. And uh, the big one that brought Warner Brothers Discovery to mind for me is that uh, Warner Brothers has decided to delay Dune Part 2 into 2024, even though that was not slated to come out until November. That is a bleak sign, because it means somebody there is worried that Timothy Chalamet will not be able to host SNL or go on Fallon to promote Dune Part 2, and they feel like they really need that. Honestly, I think that this makes sense. Uh, Timothy Chalamet and Zendaya are huge, huge celebrities. And I think that, they, you know, they, they bring in young people when they 
they're like two of the only young movie stars who still bring people to theaters. So I think that wanting them to be able to promote the movie um, and maybe even in less traditional ways, maybe they had something else planned to get the word out there with those two. Um, it, it makes sense to me. Uh, this The decision to delay Dune 2 has been really criticized all over uh, social media, but to me, it, it makes a lot of sense. It is, however, as we've said many times this episode, discouraging. Oh, yes. Deeply. Uh, there is one more difference. Speaking of uh, big, epic, special effects-filled uh, spectacles like Dune 2, uh, uh, one more difference between Wabro Disco and Disney I, I wanted to draw some attention to, and that would be the uh, other labor movement brewing uh, in Hollywood. This one has been, you know, actually kind of coming to a simmer for a long time. Uh, it's the visual effects artists, and there has been so much reporting uh, that I think has fallen by the wayside a little bit since the, the strike started about the uh, industry crunch there, people burning out, people being overworked, the quality of the VFX work going down, as was uh, brought up earlier this year around Ant-Man and a lot of the Marvel shows. Well, Disney's VFX uh, workers have made their most official move yet to unionize, and it has been uh, a, 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 the requirement was a super majority vote, and that was passed. And the National Labor Relations uh, Board is uh, acknowledging this, which means Disney now has to come to the table. I think that this is great news because uh, I think they can use the leverage of the other strikes happening to um, hopefully get a better result here. And, you know, possibly without striking, um, that would be great for all parties. Um, and I'm I'm so excited to hear this. I think that seeing solidarity among different types of arts workers at a moment when we know that leadership is going to try to play these groups off of each other is really uh, actually not discouraging. It's heartening. Heartening. Look at that. Ending some news on a high note. And you know what else is heartening? Your blood that I want to suck if I am a vampire like Nandor, Laszlo, and Nadja on What We Do in the Shadows. It's this week's review. Yes, we, I, I made the lowest hanging fruit transition I could. And I feel like the, the vampires would be proud. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a, a rare thing nowadays. A comedy with jokes. Wild, I know. If you are somehow not familiar with this show, it is called What We Do in the Shadows. It's based originally on a movie called What We Do in the Shadows uh, from, you know, the Southern Hemisphere, Taika Waititi and Company in the New Zealand land. You, you, oh, we'll never find such, uh, you know, japes or humor here in the Northern Hemisphere unless they adapt it and set it in Staten Island, which is what they did for FX when they pitched What We Do in the Shadows for a U.S. audience. And uh, to this day, the, the specificity of putting them on Staten Island it pays dividends over and over and over again because we are just wrapping the fifth season of What We Do in the Shadows on FX, also streaming on Hulu, and we will be lightly spoiling some uh, character details uh, throughout the seasons. I definitely want to talk about uh, some of the big arcs from season four 
uh, season four, of course, wrapped a while ago. So maybe you've seen it. And even if you haven't, uh, Diane made a great point. This is a show with jokes that are funny, even if you know what's going to happen to the characters, he says in air quotes. Because really, did you ever care what happens to the characters on a sitcom like 30 Rock or Frasier? No. And it is so nice to watch a show where that is still pretty true, though the characters do go through some some major arcs. I, I think it's not a big spoiler to say they always kind of come back to the same status quo that is very funny and very jokey, and that is the, the true core of what we do in the shadows. Prove me wrong. Oh, I wholeheartedly agree. I love that they come back to, you know, these four main characters in a house together. You know, uh, the group expands and contracts a little bit and changes with some different side characters. Uh, and it is a show with so many wonderful uh, guest appearances um, by like all your favorite comic actors. Um, it's just so funny. And I also really feel um, that it's given these characters the chance to develop. And I love that for them. Like, they're, they're more human than one might expect on a very, very silly sitcom about vampires. Yeah, and there is such a, a perfect balance that uh, many great sitcoms have achieved, but it is not so common these days, where the characters grow, but the setting retains its status quo over and over and over again. So I do feel like I've, uh, you know, some of these characters, in particular Laszlo, have have grown enormously, and yet he is still the same. I laugh at the same kind of jokes he makes. He does not have to change why he is funny, but he can still grow emotionally, which makes me even more invested in the show, even if the jokes don't need that. Agreed. Agreed. Yeah, it's it's the sort of... Uh, it's just like such a compelling argument for why comedies should be given seasons past two or three. Oh, absolutely. And it's uh, given them a chance to to experiment with their format, which is a mockumentary format. It, the original What We Do in the Shadows was sort of in the heyday of mockumentary humor. And as we've talked about on uh, this podcast, mockumentary humor fell out of style, I think, for a bit and has had a popular resurgence with Abbott Elementary on ABC, which has really nailed that format again. But What We Do in the Shadows has always done it in its very own way where the the documentary crew is acknowledged and is often put in life-threatening peril and yet they never need to explain what happens to any of them it's not relevant to the the plot of the show but it is engaged and acknowledged uh, and it lets them uh do some really i think fun uh stylistic stuff in particular i'm thinking of in season four i was re-watching some favorites and uh season four features an episode called go flip yourself which is an <laughs> entire episode of the show in the format of an hgtv style house renovation show that in universe has been mentioned before go flip yourself is one of laszlo's favorite shows and the whole episode is filmed narrated uh you know underscored in the style of one of those shows and it works because we're already used to a documentary crew format of this show it does not feel like an enormous uh stylistic break but it is in fact so funny because it nails the um the tone and the tropes of that kind of tv show so well right and i don't watch a ton of those shows to be honest i'm just like not really 
I, I live in a tiny apartment. They just make me sad mm-hmm. about the home improvement that I shan't be doing. But uh, because it it does parody it very well, while at the same time progressing the story of our characters, you know, and they're just my favorite people to hang out with. <laughs> Yeah, they, that's such a good way to put it. I just always enjoy, like, having a laugh with them, literally. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and you know, we, we talk a lot about character growth uh, and development uh, while also immediately saying, but it doesn't matter. Uh, and, of course, it, it does matter. But what I love is how they, they really explore these in really cohesive arcs. And at the end of the arc, things sort of reset to the status quo. Uh, season four had three of those arcs, really. One of them is Nandor, kind of our main vampire. He finds a djinn, which is basically a genie, who grants him a series of, you know, uh, escalatingly narcissistic wishes, resulting in Nandor marrying the reincarnation of one of his wives from, from you know, he's been alive for centuries, so he's had many. Uh, and the, the Nandor genie Marwa uh, arc, that's one arc, spoiler alert, Marwa's gone in season five, Nandor grows, he goes on a journey, and at the end we reset, no Jin, no Marwa, we're back to where we were. Similarly, we have Laszlo and Colin Robinson. Colin Robinson, the <laughs> energy vampire. Uh, and at the end of season three, in what I think was one of their best twists or uh, just kind of uh, unexpected moments, Colin Robinson dies they, they reveal that energy vampires have like a finite lifespan and Colin Robinson essentially explodes, sort of. Uh, and a baby Colin Robinson crawls out of his corpse. It's incredible. I do think it might be helpful for anyone who hasn't seen the show before to explain what an energy vampire is. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so it's energy- just one of my favorite bits. <laughs> It's true. It is. You you know you've been watching this show for, for years when you just kind of casually say, you know, the energy vampire. Uh, the energy vampire, completely different rules than a regular vampire. He uh, sucks people's energy by boring them to death, basically. Uh, he is a, a nebbish, balding man played just perfectly by Mark Proshk. Uh, just an excellent, excellent character. And and sort of the villain of the household sometimes because he is feeding off of everyone kind of always uh, and is very hard to spend a lot of time around. And so they made this twist of having him uh, die, but then having Laszlo find the baby Colin Robinson in in this uh, reincarnation kind of phoenix rising from the ashes. Uh, but, it, but it is a literal like baby with the CGI terrifying face of this like 45-year-old man. Uh, and he raises the baby, Colin Robinson, and that is one of the three major arcs of season four. Baby Colin Robinson becoming toddler cop Colin Robinson, becoming a child, then teenage Colin Robinson as he goes through this accelerated aging process, ending in him returning to being the nebbish 45-something-year-old man, Colin Robinson, who is an energy vampire and is exactly like he was before any of this happened. And then we have the third strand, which is Nadja owning a vampire nightclub. And that intersects with all of the other strands. But all of those begin at the beginning of the season, end at the end of the season. The characters go on these great, uh, fun, growth-filled journeys and then stick a landing at the end that says the next season is going to be about something else. And it is about something very juicy with Guillermo, 
But that is our next conversation. Do you feel like this resetting is a... A- am I on to something here? Is this the the secret to what we do in the shadows? Because I'm beginning to think it is. Uh, I agree. I agree. I think it is. I think the show understands its DNA really well. So, um, you know, they have some of the like fish out of water jokes where like uh, they are in Staten Island. And so there are like normal things happening around them. Like, you know, Colin Robinson works in an office at the beginning of the show. Uh, he has, he becomes a server later, but you know, um, it, he interacts with like everyday people. And those kind of interactions are like classic sitcom fare. Just like having the house is like a classic sitcom thing. You need the place where everyone hangs out. And I think that they understand that. And then they're able to take these big diversions that like I'm not sure in season one or two if they could have gotten away with everything that happens with baby Colin Robinson because it's so out there it's so crazy and they never really explain why it happened it's just like oh you're in this world and this kind of thing happens here (laughs) the baby crawled out of his chest cavity and (laughs) mysteriously has his face it's very hard to see it at the beginning um (laughs) but it it because they've established these characters in this world so well at that point, it's actually kind of a touching storyline. Yes, it, honestly, that's the thing about there is so much emotional growth in it. And at the end of it, Colin and Laszlo outwardly revert to the same Colin and Laszlo that they've been since season one. But you, the viewer, have gone on this emotional journey with them. And, and you know, the showrunners, the actors, they're smart. They know how to have uh, moments that remind you of that emotional growth or that depth you felt towards the characters, but they do not lean into it. They are not schmaltzy. It has not become melodramatic or a dramedy. It is still, at its core, the funny show about vampires living in Staten Island that it was on day one. It's just grown. It has, and I'm really happy to be along for the ride. Same. And, and there have been moments where I think some of these big swings make make me wonder, are, are they going to stick this landing? Where are they going with this? Can it get this weird? But they have absolutely earned the weirdness. Uh, in this fifth season, we're tracking one of the, I think, most uh, consequential uh, choices they've made yet, which is for Guillermo, the familiar, and in, uh, of course, vampire culture, a familiar is a human who serves a vampire master. So Guillermo has been Nandor's familiar since uh, season one. He is the human of the house who takes care of the human chores and tasks, uh, and he has always wanted to be a vampire. And he's always been waiting for Nandor, his master, to make him a vampire. But in yet another kind of twist Uh, At the end of season four, he has someone else make him a vampire, Derek. (laughs) Derek makes him a vampire. And they they executed that end of season moment in a way where it wasn't clear if it happened or not. They left an out. It wasn't as dramatic as Colin Robinson's death at the end of season three in that way. But with the start of season five, they've really leaned into it. He did begin the process of turning into a vampire, and they doubled down on it by revealing that in vampire culture, to have someone other than your master turn you is the greatest betrayal ever, which has never been established in the past, doesn't matter, because this is a world where they can just say that, just like they can say, baby Colin Robinson. And you go, yeah, of course, at this point, I completely (laughs) believe you, I am ready to hop on the train and see where it goes. 
Yes, totally agree. So I feel like over the seasons, they have sort of evolved Guillermo's status in this world in an interesting way. Like they inched up to him doing this. They did. It is less of a shocking twist in some ways. I, I think baby Colin Robinson still shocked me more and felt like a bigger swing for the show. So weird and unexpected. Whereas Guillermo's always wanted this and they've inched up to this level of a uh, kind of uh, big swing for Guillermo because on the way here, we've learned Guillermo is a Van Helsing of the great vampire hunting Van Helsing lineage, and he has killed many, many, many vampires in the course of the seasons since we learned he is a Van Helsing. And now he is a Van Helsing who's turning into a vampire, which adds another level to that, but we were already at the level of he- he's Guillermo Van Helsing. And he's also like a guy who lives on Staten Island. And visits his mother all the time. One of my favorite... Where's Cardigans? My favorite running, sort of running jokes this season. There's an episode where Guillermo is going to uh, uh, his mother's apartment to tell her he can never see her again because he's turning into a vampire and coming from a very religious family of vampire hunters, he obviously can never see them again once he becomes a vampire. And it's a little emotional that he's going to do this and, and then it's funny that he didn't remember it's his mother's birthday and so he's walking into a birthday party trying to deliver this very emotional news to her and then he finally delivers this you know kind of coded speech at the end about how they're not gonna be able to see each other anymore and and it's very touching and and he walks out and the camera lingers on his mother and another relative and and you realize he's done this once a week every week since he was bitten he just comes once a week and gives this cryptic speech about how he won't be able to see them anymore and then he just comes back the next week, which is so sweet and so relatable and 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 also a kind of classic sitcom behavior. It just so happens it's about him turning into a vampire. Yeah. Yeah. I I really think that this show is so smart in that way. Um, They understand the structure that they're playing with. And while a lot of sort of TV comedies have made interesting ventures into longer episodes or longer seasons or darker material, you know, like straying away from jokes. In a lot of ways, this show honors its sitcom format. The episodes are like 24 minutes long. I mean, if like me, you watch them on Hulu with ads, they're like a half an hour. And it it feels just like a classic sitcom that you would have seen in the 90s, except, you know, dirtier and much dirtier more vampiric yeah yeah dirtier bloodier 100 percent more vampires but otherwise <laughs> classic network sitcom tropes yeah and that works it really does. Imagine if you were watching Mad About You in the 90s and the lead singer of the uh, indie rock band Phoenix, Thomas Mars, married, of course, to Sofia Coppola, arrives in a scene to get his jugular ripped out by a vampire. And you're like, yeah, hilarious. Polarizer, <laughs> you scamp. Uh, I also love how uh, bisexual this show is. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> In this in this past week's episode, uh, you know, this week is the season finale, hasn't aired yet. Last week's episode, there's a, a joke, uh, Laszlo is kind of catatonic and they can't figure out why. And not just saying, it's like we're not even having sex anymore. We only have sex 16 times a week. And Nandor <laughs> goes, and we're only doing it three times a week. <laughs> it's a running joke and there's no... Um... 
it doesn't seem like the showrunners are ever patting themselves on the back for being like historic in their representation or something. They're just like, well, yeah, they're vampires. That's their thing. And and that's this world. And that makes sense. Yeah, they're, they're, they're bored and horny and a thousand years old and they can't eat. They're, you know, they have all these vampire rules. One of the few things they can do is uh, I'm expletive. Uh, I don't want to have to go back and edit a beep into the episode. But you know what word I was going to say. And they can do that. And they say that word on the show kind of a lot. A lot, which is great. And again, it's something where uh, FX is the it's on brand. It is the mm-hmm. FX comedy to me in so many ways. Uh, and of course, all the love for Always Sunny in Philadelphia, the the. Uh, creator, I think, of the FX comedy brand in so many ways. But What We Do in the Shadows has really uh, stepped up to be that kind of crown jewel of the FX lineup. Uh, And it's uh, very at home on Hulu, where one of the strengths of Hulu, I think, is their deep adult comedy catalog uh, from, you know, kind of traditional sitcoms, but also their big animation lineup that we talked about on our last episode. And a mayhem. Yeah. And a mayhem. I think that it, that this show definitely um, owes some of its DNA to classic sitcoms like we've been talking about, but also to shows like Always Sunny. So yeah, yeah. to Always Sunny, and I also think some of that adult animation too. That you know mm-hmm. that kind of crass humor. The the road was paved by Family Guy and South Park and many of those shows. Archer, yeah. Oh yeah, Archer, which we should find some time to talk about as it enters its final season on FX, uh, which is getting great reviews, actually. Archer, uh, in its 14th or 15th, we've talked about it. We'll talk about it again. What we want to know, listener, is what shows should you tell us to talk about. That's almost what I meant to say, but the the sentiment is all the same. Email us, podcast at streamageddon.com. There are shows coming out this fall. We are going to have shows to talk about, we swear, and uh, they probably will not be Quantum Leap, because I've seen a couple episodes of Quantum Leap, and nobody needs to go there. But we might talk about The Golden Bachelor. We want to know, what other shows should we talk about? Have you seen Ahsoka? Should we watch it? Oh, what a great, uh, you know, unexpected note to end on because we we ragged on Disney so much this episode. There's nothing on Disney Plus. You don't need Disney Plus. Ahsoka's pretty good. There's only been uh, two episodes that I've seen so far, uh, but it reminds me of early Mandalorian minus the need for a cute thing. And that is interesting because so much of the success of early Mandalorian was Baby Yoda and the unexpected cuteness factor. Ahsoka does not have that and does not seem to be interested in that cute factor at all, but still has the old Star Wars vibes, good production value, real gritty feel that uh, uh, Andor and early Mandalorian have. I wonder if Baby Colin Robinson was what we do in the shadows response to I mean, honestly, if I had to rank the two of those characters, I'll tell you which one I like better. And uh, sorry, Grogu. (laughs) Sorry, Grogu. Grogu, you just don't have the expressive face of baby Colin Robinson with Mark Prosk's face. It's so disturbing. Uh, Disturbing, discouraging. The world of streaming has never been better. And you can hear more about it every other week here on Streamageddon. You look like you want to say something. Keep streaming. Oh, keep streaming. (laughs) 
Thank you for that.